Previously on Add Passion and Stir. We're in Washington, D.C. today. My sister, Debbie Shore, is with me, and we've got two really special guests. Jim Wallace, who is the uh, founder, president, and CEO of Sojourners, both the organization and Sojourners magazine, and such an important voice in our country on a range of issues from inequality to racial justice to uh, faith. He's the author of, uh, I think, at least a dozen books, but I think the most recent is America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. And our good friend, Michael Schlau, who has been a champion for Share Our Strength. He's a James Beard Award winner for the Northeast. He's got restaurants in Boston, L.A., and D.C. Here in D.C., it's the Rigsby, Tico, and Alta Strada. You've just you know, you've been an amazing friend to us for a long time, Michael, and we're, we're thrilled to have you on. There was something uh, that felt wrong to you, mm-hmm. and I, I think I know what you mean in terms of probably the inequality and so forth, but say a little bit more about, for you personally, what did you actually see and what touched, what was it specifically that touched your heart? Well, it was about, <laughs> it was about this last book I wrote, America's Original Sin. Uh, it was about racism. So uh, I become friends with Butch, uh, we're janitors together, Detroit Edison, big strong guys like moving the heaviest desks around. He's black and I'm white. We become buddies. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when we had elevator operators. Right. So when those little guys were sick, they put me and Butch in the elevators. They got to give you breaks when you're doing the elevator. So I go into his elevator on his on my break and ride up and down with him and talk. And he comes into mine and we talk and talk. Takes me home for dinner. And his mother says to me, well, so I tell my kids, we're talking about police in Detroit. So I tell my kids, if you're ever ever lost, can't find your way home, and you see a policeman duck under a stairwell, hide behind a building, wait till he's gone, come out and find your way home. And when Butch's mother said that to me, she's just like my mother, Hmm. not political, militant, cared about her kids, worried about her son's radical ideas. My mom said to her five kids, if you ever lost, can't find your way home, look for a policeman. A policeman is your friend, and he'll take you by the hand and bring you home. So those moments, those epiphanies, we might say, are what changed my life. Uh, And so um, I remember Butch's mom saying that as clearly right now talking to you is, is when I heard her say that. So that changes your whole worldview. How old were you when this happened? Oh, maybe sixteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, just as you, uh, just as um, you were arriving, we were talking with Michael about uh, an early experience that touched your heart, and it was really as it was as personal as could be in terms of um, growing up in a family that was pretty well off, and then your dad left, and your circumstances changed. And as somebody who's been an advocate for our work on. Uh, school nutrition assistance and the SNAP food stamp program and school meals. Um, these are programs that actually you can oh, they, they, personally. They, yeah, they had uh, very much a. I had a personal experience in that, <clears throat> as I said, when, you know, when we were getting together this this morning, was that uh, my family needed to use uh, welfare, and back then it wasn't called SNAP, but uh, we had. I'm dating myself here, like you are, Jim, about the uh, the operators of the uh, elevator. I had a little coin that the government gave me to get my very special lunch. And uh, I was saying to Billy that I, I struggle with the term, you know, food insecurity. 
Um, I don't think it's a strong enough term, you know, and I know we don't use it at share our strength, but it is something you hear often or you see it, you know, written. And it's just not strong enough term. Um, I was hungry. I wasn't insecure. I was hungry. And um, the uh, the notion of like whether it's breakfast after the bell or, you know, for some kids like myself, my mom had gone to work. We, you know, she got off of welfare. She got a job. But there were moments in my young uh, childhood where we were very, very almost – I hate to use the word, but I felt ashamed of the fact that I we couldn't afford the food. And uh, that's a case where government helped, but we also didn't abuse the system. My mother got off of welfare. She got a job, um, worked her way up in, a, in an office and became the office manager. I mean, it was a great story, and I'm very proud of my mom and how she raised us and never let us really know just how poor we were. We were we were very wealthy as little kids. Um, but my stepfather, who... who well, well, but go yeah. back to the beginning. Your dad left when you were yeah, very my dad, Yeah, my dad left when I was uh, nine years old, eight, nine years old. And my mom raised us. And for a number of years, we, it was just the four of us, my, my, my brother, my sister, and myself and my mom. And then my mom met what the gentleman who had become my stepfather, who really took over our family and, and became my father. And when I turned 40 years old, just as a gesture of love more than anything, it had nothing to do with, you know, uh, inheritance or anything like that. It was just because he had been my father. Uh, at 40 years old, I asked him to adopt me. So, it's a, it, and I did it on Father's Day. So Aww. I got adopted at 40. And he was from here in D.C. And so I pay homage to him and a lot of things with the restaurants that I do. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir for the second part of our conversation with Jim Wallace from Sojourners and Michael Schlau, chef and restaurateur from Boston, Washington, D.C., and a number of other locations. We had the opportunity to air an episode last week, and the conversation was so good that we wanted to extend it. Jim, I had read where you had said that, um, speaking of immigration, um, that the wall was a monument to racism and to Trump's vanity, which I thought was pretty powerful. Say a little bit more about that. Well, uh, this isn't political disagreement. I mean, the wall does not protect us from terrorists. Terrorists don't come in over the southern border. The wall doesn't protect us from drugs. Drugs come in by Trump's own administration. It comes in through ports of entry, cities. This idea of the wall will protect us from crime by immigrants uh, is not true. Uh, Immigrants who come to this country commit far less crimes than those already li- living here. All the data shows that. So these these are things just to make people afraid. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. Don't be so afraid. Fear is used for the resentment and for the hate and for the racism. It's fear that's being created. It's not true. What he's saying is just not true. The wall is a statement. He ran on this. This was his key issue. And what the wall says is we want to keep we want to keep non-white people out of this country. Yeah. That's what the wall is all about. It's its core. It's its base. There is no effectiveness. There's no disagreement. Talk to southern, uh, southern border politicians. The wall is, is, a, is a joke. But it really is a symbol of the kind of nation that, that Donald Trump is trying to create. So to me, it's a monument to the kind of... The, the, the kind of uh, racism that we have fought from the beginning of our country. So to me, the wall is a symbol that just not must not be 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 accepted. So we're going to see in the next couple, couple of days what happens here. Yeah. Well, the other part of, about that, if I could chime in, you know, from from a very again personal standpoint, I we started the conversation with that I was a dishwasher, and I was a dishwasher in a restaurant that had 
three other kids just like me washing dishes. Do you know how many American white kids I have washing dishes in my restaurants across the country? By the way, I have a restaurant now just outside of Detroit, which is a place that I want to invest in. I'm in Birmingham on the first one. We're testing out the waters in the suburbs first, and then we're going into, De- into Detroit. But how many white American oh, kids zero. do you think? Zero. Yeah. Zero. Yep. They won't do the job. Yep. Uh, they don't want the job. They want to come in and they want to be sous chef, you know, without actually knowing how to, you know, butcher a fish yet or something like that. But this country needs constant immigration. Of course, it should be legal. Of course, it should be done in a certain way. But let's create some reform that's realistic. You know, we need we need people to do this. The, we were talking earlier before the show about the farm bill. You know, we need immigrants to come into this country and to continually feed the workforce here. Because I could tell you that in our industry, in the restaurant industry, there isn't a restaurant in this country that doesn't have an opening right now. Nobody right. is fully yeah. staffed. That's right. that's right. Well, I'll just share one thing about the border um, that I think goes to exactly what we were talking about in terms of uh, who people really are and the, and the need to connect them. Um, we were down there visiting uh, Sister Norma uh, yeah, Pimentel's uh, well. respite center. I'm, mm-hmm. you, I'm sure you know She's her better amazing. than I do. She's an amazing woman. At the, at this is a Catholic Charities respite center. And the Border Patrol brings as many as 500 families a day to this respite center. Families who have, su- they're probably not going to get asylum, but they at least have some plausible claim. Mm-hmm. So they're not being immediately sent back to Mexico and they're not being detained. Uh, some of them have been detained. Some of them had uh, electronic ankle monitors. But the, most of them are coming directly from three months on the road from Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, what have you. And this is where they get their, their first meal, their first hot meal, mm-hmm. uh, a shower, help buying a bus ticket to where a sponsor might be able to uh, put them up while their legal case follows them. And uh, it's the Border Patrol that bring these families directly there. There's a lot of choices the Border Patrol can make. And most of these Border Patrol agents are actually very, very good men and women. They uh, they treat these families very tenderly and very, um, uh, you know, kind of compassionately. And Sister Pimentel told us the story of one of the Border Patrol agents looking in the window while the families were being fed, and he said to her, thank you for reminding us that we're human beings. Mm-hmm. And the Border Patrol didn't come up with a policy to separate children from their parents. Right. That was Washington. And they saw what it was doing, separating kids from their parents. And Sister Norma lots of other folks are down there trying to reunite families. So these, you know, in the back to that text, Jesus said, as you treat the stranger, which means those people, refugees, immigrants, that's how you treat me. So you've got a faith conversation going on about how our faith is at stake in all this, not just our politics. Mm -hmm. So when that wall stands for something that is antithetical to the gospel I believe in, or the the house that you grew up in, or my clubhouse next to the baseball field, we have to speak of those not just as political disagreements. There's no argument for a wall on effectiveness. What it means is a monument and a symbol to something that is the worst of America, worst of our history. And we have to say that's not who we are. That's not where we're going. Of course, it's got to be a a sane, humane, legal system. We all need immigration reform. We all want that. But how do we do it in a way that, uh, that really speaks the future we want? So when my son was fifth grade, 
public school in D.C., they're studying immigration. They bring in parents often to talk about something they're involved in. So I'm in there. I'm telling all these kids, most of whom I've coached in Little League, there are 11 million uh, undocumented people in this country. They can't get health care, police protection, a broken system. Both parties are responsible for that broken system. And they're afraid of their family not being together at night for dinner because somebody might get deported. These kids, fifth graders, they look at me astonished. That's wrong. We should fix that. Congress should fix that. Have you talked to them? <laughs> I said, yeah, we've talked. What do they say? They say they're afraid. What are they afraid of? And I looked at these kids. D.C. school, public school, fifth grader, African American, Hispanic, Asian American, Native American, Caucasian, Somali. I looked at them. I said, they're afraid of you. Mm-hmm. 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 Of this, of of what you of guys diversity. look like, what yeah. you represent. Why are they afraid of us? Because you're the future. This is what this nation's going to look like, and some people are afraid of that. They said, "Why?" Well, they've never experienced it. They don't know it. They don't have any friends like you. Uh, how's it working? I said, "Well, at least it's working great. It's really cool." Well, we have to convince the nation that you this is really cool. If you take the, the the wall and the border fight and even the Trump administration aside, I want to take advantage of your long per, long view perspective over all of these years. Are, are we going in the right direction or the wrong direction? And again, I know it's hard to take the immediate out of the picture, but if you take the Trump administration and all of the vitriol and the rhetoric, if you take that out before Trump, were we headed in the right direction as a nation or the wrong direction on the I kind think, of issues we've been discussing? I think Donald Trump has revealed... He's, he didn't cause all this. He's revealed what was already there. And so this presents us, and you mentioned opportunity, yeah. the symbols for the word crisis in Chinese are two symbols, uh, danger and opportunity. Mm-hmm. We face enormous danger. Our democracy is literally at stake now. It's not clear that our institutions will have the resilience to survive all this. That is not yet clear. The soul of the nation is at stake, uh, and also the integrity of faith. But if we realize what's at stake, and if we go deeper into deeper into whatever it is we call faith, deeper into our relationship with each other across racial lines, and deeper into relationship with those whom Jesus talked about in that 25th chapter of Matthew, who are hungry and thirsty and naked and stranger and sick and in prison, that could change us if we, we go deeper. There won't be a quick fix or an easy solution, or just electing somebody else. I'm all for elections, changing leadership, but it's going to be deeper than that. This could take us to a different nation because we're becoming a different nation But now. You, you touched on something, Jim, that you know I think needs to be underscored, and that is that no matter what your politics are, you're right, Trump didn't actually cause this. This was here. He just allowed the, the right. lid to be opened up and for right. this to come flowing exactly. out and making it, exactly. I hate to say it, but it's like everyday mm-hmm. you know, rhetoric from him. And he's allowing this. Mm-hmm. Made and it okay. And make, is making it's this hate part. okay. Yeah. And that's the part that I just can't seem to get over. And I don't understand. You know, I always want to believe that that we're decent, you know, good people at heart, that everybody is. And my wife will say to me sometimes, you know, you're an eternal optimist. And maybe you need to be a little bit more of a realist. And unfortunately, hate is something that is really prevalent in our country. And now it's been expose just how bad some of this really is. And so I go back again to the parents and that if, you're, if your parent taught you to hate, 
chances are it's going to be really hard to unwind that as an adult. You know, you get stuck with these things. We all are products of our of our environment as a, as a child and as an adult, and we we go through these experiences, and we need to do something as that's as unifying as possible to get people to understand that this is this isn't right. You know, that mm-hmm. you don't hate somebody because their skin color is different. You don't hate somebody because they're from a different country. Um, or they have a different religion. That's not a good reason to hate somebody or to be afraid of them, as you said. And so through food, I mean, we try to do that. And we break bread. And we have, you know, when I was a kid, the communal table did not exist in a restaurant. I love communal tables. Or we did a dinner the other night at Nama, which is my new sushi restaurant in D.C. There's a shameless plug for that. <laughs> and, um, but what we did is we only sat at the counter and everybody ate together, you know, and it was one seating. We all ate together. And I told stories. And Little by little, if everybody can do some of those things, I mean, that's a, that's a start, is breaking bread together. It's a start. But there's more that, that obviously needs to be done. After just food. 9-11, there was a television thing that attacked Muslims, and my son, Luke, was eight years old, and he said, he said, Dad, that's not true. That's not true what that guy just said about Muslims. Muhammad is not like that at all. Right. Mm-hmm. So when, when people, people who are for immigration reform are usually the people who know immigrants. Mm-hmm. The people who are most against all that, against who want the wall, are people who don't know immigrants. So how do we find the tables? How do we find the places? How do we find the venues? We finally get to know who each other are. Hear our stories. Stories are told over dinner. Yeah. In terms of where where that table should be, we're going to end on a on a I guess a lighter note because one of the things our listeners are always interested in is um, where is a great place to have that meal. If there's a if there's a hidden gem, and Michael, it can't be one of your own restaurants. Your restaurants yes. are great places to have that <laughs> meal, but you're also an expert on food in Washington and Boston and a mm-hmm. lot of other places. So I was going to ask each of you, um, somebody's inspired and says, I'm actually going to pull together a group of people, and where's a place that might not be on the radar screen I might not have seen reviewed? Where would be a nice place to take folks and have a, a great meal and a conversation. Where well, would you that recommend? hasn't been reviewed. I mean, mo- most well, it doesn't. Of, yeah. No, it doesn't it have to just, be the case. Just a place just to go a, and have a great a meal. A place that folks just may not know about. Yeah, I mean, or, or your go-to place. Well, I have so many. You know, I'm a. I, once I find a place that I love, I I keep going back to it. Like I, I'll say that nine out of ten meals out are a place that I've been to before, and then that yeah. that one out of ten is something that's new, and hopefully that becomes a new regular spot. It doesn't always work that way, but you know, it's my hope. And so I always find myself going back to the places that food is important, but the experience is more important. It goes back to the idea of, of, of breaking bread together and sitting at a table and being able to converse. So I like to go to places, you know, and I actually put them up on my website. There's there's this thing called oh, Chef Recommends. And okay, well, give us one. So um, in each place, um, and this these are all different price points, obviously, but like there's a place that I just love to go have dinner um, in Boston, called Select Oyster, and it's oh, yeah. it's a it's a great place. It's small. We, we'll bring friends if they're coming from out of town. I mean, I have about twenty restaurants in in Boston. I'm not trying to you know get any of my friends. Is that Michael Serpa? It is. The chef? Yeah, because he rode uh, 300 miles with us. We do a ride called Chef Cycle, Jim. 100 miles a day for three days. His food and is he delicious. Was, he was a, an amazing rider. Yeah, I yeah. really and I Select like Select Oyster. That's a good one. It's a good one. And Give us I, one in DC too. In DC, let's see my new. I mean, I have so many new favorite spots. I just had. Uh, I had a delicious meal at uh, Himitsu. Have you oh, been yeah. there yet? Yeah, my sister loves it. I Himitsu. just went there a couple of weeks ago and just had not only a great meal, the food was delicious, but the service was spectacular. And again, there's 20 or 30 restaurants oh, in each of these cities that I could name. And uh, But Chef recommends on your website, yeah. michaelschlau.com, yep. uh, Michael, S-C-H-L-O-W.com. Correct. Dot com. 
yeah. is the place to go. I've seen that. And yeah, it's a and, great I, list. and I do it for every city that I go to. It's, it has Rome and Florence and you know all kinds. London's on there, San Francisco. And, you know, some of my friends will get mad at me and say like, "Hey." Why am I not on there? And I might say, I didn't have, no, I'm teasing. I, maybe I just forgot, but uh, I got to put more more stuff up there for sure. Uh, Jim, where, where would we find you if we wanted to finish this conversation over a good meal? Probably the best meal I've had in a long time was the one after that two-week fast because you're, anything tastes good. But we had Jose Andres' broth. Okay. It tasted really good. And again, the issue was who was eating it. You know, those who've been fasting. Yes immigrants, faith leaders, and those who came. And it was such a powerful notion. So I would say, I'm looking at the table, and I'm going to use a phrase, where where are the uncommon tables? Mm. Mm-hmm. Where are people who really are not the same, who are not uh, just like each other? But where are the uncommon? We're going to need some uncommon tables in this country. And I think maybe the best place are going to be people's own homes. Mm where they decide to to go to dinner someplace where they've not been before with families that they don't normally have dinner with or invite people to their houses and create those places. There's lots of restaurants that I know and like, but create those uncommon tables in our own homes. And the intimacy, the but, intimacy but, that but, you can you know, have I, in your I, own home. I know we're running out of time, but I was going to say that, that that brings up a point, though, where you know when we were kids, the idea of, going over to somebody's house and, you know, the moms would get together for coffee and the mm-hmm. kids would play. That's gone. Nobody, no, None of my neighbors mm-hmm. knock on my door and say, hi, how are you doing today? Like, you barely say hello to each other in the, in the elevator. We live in Boston in a, you know, a small building, but, you know, we it's an apart, it's a condo. And the notion of who's your friend even in your mm-hmm. in your buildings, you barely know your neighbors today. And I think that's where it could start is learning, learning who your neighbors right. are inviting them over for something that would be a great way to start this yeah the dinner party seems to have i don't know why people don't they, people joke with me they say you know do you ever get invited to somebody's house for dinner i said rarely but the reality is you could give me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich it's the act of hospitality yep. and yes, that gesture right. of giving yes, it is right. already a good meal i'll have and you over okay good as long as i don't have to cook it the next day too. okay <laughs> uh that's a great note to end on uh thank you so much Really, just such a treat to have both of you. Michael Schlau, um, your restaurants uh, here in D.C. are the Rigsby, Alta Strada, Tico, and you mentioned, is it Na- Nama, Nama and Casolari? Yeah, so that's, Casolari. that's what we have here in, in D.C. And then uh, uh-huh. L.A., we have Cavatina. In Detroit, we are just outside of Detroit, is Adachi. And then in Boston, there's another Tico and Alta Strada and Alta Strada. In Connecticut, we are busy. So. And uh, you can find <laughs> it all at michaelschlau.com. Yes. Um, and Jim Wallace, uh, such an inspiration to so many of us for so long. Your voice is just, it, it, it's always been important. I think it's never been more critical. And uh, the work of Sojourners, uh, Sojourners Magazine, um, your books, uh, just really vital. Thank you so much. It's well, really a blessing to, to be here. And Sojo.net for us is not, not a restaurant. Sojo.net. So, Sojo.net is where a lot of young people find the resources to go forward now. It's the voices that we're trying to lift up all over the country. And Sojo.net is a place to find us. I'm going to throw out a little idea here. Um, It just came to me. And, Jim, if you would like to put together, say, a table of 12 of different people, I will host that at one of my restaurants. Oh, we're in. Could it be 12 12 plus 2? 12 plus 2. Can Debbie and I be the plus 2? What a great idea. I just came to us. That's a really great idea. Can we do that? Let's do it. Let's do that. Let's do it soon. That would really be amazing. Yeah. So, and uh, I don't know, maybe we'll, I don't know, decide if we bring a microphone or not. It's I a feel great like idea. that would be an amazing conversation. Let's go. Um, it starts with us, right? It yeah, starts I with love us. That. Wow. That's Always great. Does. Uh, 
Boy, thanks, what everybody. a great conversation. Thank you both. Debbie Shore, thanks yeah, as yeah. always. Um, thanks for listening to Add Passion and Stir. Our producer, Paul Woodall, Woody, and District Productive, the best place to do podcasts. Um, and to our team at Share Our Strength and Kelly Griffin, thanks for making this happen. Uh, we hope if you enjoy the podcast, you'll go to Add Passion and Stir, look at our previous episodes, uh, rank them, rate them, subscribe, let your friends uh, know about it. I'm Billy Shore. This is Ad Passion and Stir. Ad Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Ad Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall. <laughs>